Thanks, guys. Morning, everybody. Well, this week we're going to start a new series for Advent called Songs of the Messiah. It was actually Lloyd's idea. And we're going to focus on the songs in the book of Luke where people kind of burst out in exuberant praise. Um, Next week, we're actually going to deal with the poetry sections. The ones for this week are a little bit shorter. Um, But that's what this is about. And the idea is that part of the purpose of the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus, was to bring joy so that—and we were supposed to experience that joy, and we were supposed to express that joy. We were supposed to actually—and are supposed to actually experience exuberant praise. The, the human spirit or the human condition is kind of caught in a weird paradox because on one, le- on one side, because we're made in God's image, we're meant to enjoy all things enjoyable. We're meant to um, glorify God and enjoy him forever is the first statement of the Westminster Confession. And that, that's our heritage. That's what we're created for. We are, we are part of the purpose God, reason God created us was enjoyment, to enjoy him And the human heart longs for praise and joy and the expression of that praise. There's a—Lewis said in um, Reflection on the Psalms that we haven't fully enjoyed something until we express our enjoyment, right? On On the other hand, we have a really broken compass for what to celebrate as human beings. Um— Let's, and so let me submit to you as evidence um, some fun examples. That's a joke. Let's not do that one. Um, so since the 1600s in Spain, there is the baby jumping celebration. It is a Catholic ceremony that the Pope does not endorse in which people leap over babies to celebrate something. Okay. Um, there's also the baby crying festival. Now this is, this is related to Japanese sumo. And what happens is um, the fighters actually, each person holds a small baby. And um, there's two sumo wrestlers. Each one holds one baby. The two babies face the referee. The referee puts on grotesque demon spirit masks to try to make both babies cry. Whichever baby cries the loudest and the longest is considered the winner. And um, that child is said to receive good luck for their lives. There's also not to be topped India's baby dropping ceremony in which— Small toddlers are dropped from the top of Hindu temples, um, usually only about 30 feet in the air. And you can see actually that there is a blanket to catch them down there at the bottom, dutifully held by numerous adults. It's perfectly safe, probably. And clearly the child is totally into it. In Europe, they have the broad medieval festivals in which people dress up like barnyard animals. And also, this is not a KK Hay celebration, but that is a standard Mardi Gras fair for a, um, a celebration of sin that happens right before Lent starts called Mardi Gras, which is a little weird. And then, um, not to be outdone, another part of Japan has, um, in order to bring the whole country together to the middle, they have the belly button festival, where people wear hats over their head, shoulders, and arms. You can actually see some elbows sticking down. And then you paint your chest and belly whatever you want. Usually it's a face of some kind, and the belly button is usually the mouth, which obviously men have more to work with. Women usually wear tank tops. And then there's that one, which is a little weird why you would dump a big, like, thing of Gatorade over somebody to win a game, but apparently the reason is it was started by the 1984 Bears, and the first one was dumped over Mike Didka, and although I hate the Bears, you do have to pay a certain amount of respect for the Chuck Norris of football. Okay, so— 
in addition to like all the weird things people celebrate, there's also the whole issue of like what we celebrate. I mean, have you noticed when was the last time you just danced just for fun? Right? Okay. Yeah, but you do dance. Like, I mean, can, can you do any folk dances? Right? There's this violinist, Natalie McMasters, who grew up in um, Gaelic, Nova Scotia, and she, she said every time we would go to somebody's house, like every time we go to somebody's house, somebody would bust out a fiddle, and there would be a piano in the house, and we would like dance for an hour and a half. Like we would play Gaelic folk tunes and dance for an hour and a half. That was just—that's just—that's just age six and up, right? We don't—dancing is basically an opportunity to watch other professionals dance or to have, like, a prelude to promiscuity. I mean, like, that's what we're used dance for. We, we don't have folk dances. We don't have—the elders actually debated for a little while last year, because um, we had—we originally at High Point Church, this is like 15 or 20 years ago now, we built the Micah Center so that High Point families could have wedding celebrations. They could have their reception back there so they didn't have to spend $10,000 on a wedding if they didn't have to. You didn't have to have a lot of money. You didn't have to shack up until you could do it. You just tell the church leadership, we'd like, well, we'll have a potluck and you can have it back there and your whole wedding will cost 40 bucks, right? But somewhere back in Middleton Baptist Fundamentalism, we just decided no alcohol, no dancing. Why? Because there would already been the pop music turn. I don't know if you've been to dancing at weddings, but it's a little, a little awful. Um, except for the really corny organized dances, right? Like that's why people still do the electric slide, which was an abomination when it was first invented, right? <laughs> because people crave organized dances because they have no idea what to do when they're not told what to do, right? This is why everybody wants to go like a sense and sensibility ball. Anyway, the point is, is that we're like, okay, the Bible affirms dancing everywhere. Marriage is like a penultimate human celebration. How can we as a church say, hey, why don't you have your wedding celebration here, except you can't even drink champagne at your wedding, and you certainly can't move to music in any meaningful way that could create enjoyment. Right? There's this joke at Roberts Wesleyan Colleges. Why was Roberts Wesleyan against premarital sex? And the answer was because it could lead to dancing. Right? <laughs> And so we kind of debated as an elder board. We're like, there has to be some form of dancing. So we actually okayed this one wedding because they asked to do swing dancing. And we're like, do we have a theological objection to the pre-promiscuity options of swing dancing? Like, no. So we were like, sure. And then we're like, was there any other kinds of dancing? So we okayed swing dancing and organized British line dancing. We're like, those are categorically fine. And if you have your reception here, you can serve everybody a glass of wine with their dinner and you can have champagne. Everybody gets those two drinks and that's it. Right? So you can have alcohol and you can dance, but you can't do either of them weirdly. And we don't have to referee. But there's that, there's that tension like, we just celebrate, we're driven to celebrate wrong, and yet we long to celebrate. We were created for exuberant praise, and yet we make up things like baby dropping ceremonies just to have fun. What that should lead us to is a recognition as we look at this passage and we think about exuberant praise and we think about joy, that exuberant praise, praise flows from my belief in God and his good news. Exuberant praise flows from my belief in God's good news. Now, if you're from a tradition that doesn't think it's corny and make you angry when people ask you to repeat after them, you can repeat this after me. Your joy comes from say, my joy comes from my faith in the good news. 
My joy comes from my faith in the good news. Only two people did it last service. You guys are, you guys are something. Um, it's not just general belief in God, and it's not just general faith that some, God did something in the world. It comes from your belief that God has done something in and for you. And it's not just that you believe in a God, but you believe in the God who has disclosed himself by giving you good news. And, if, and you will not get the kind of joy you were made for by believing in a general God or a general notion of what God is doing. The only time you can really experience the full panoply of joy that God is offering you and that he wants you to have is that if you believe in the God who is there, in his self-revelation, and specifically in the good news that he has brought for you, for you to believe. And when you believe it for you, then you can experience the, the exuberant praise, the real joy that God wants us to experience. So there's two things to think, talk about related to that. The first is, is that you have to believe God and the good news. Okay, now, I know that that sounds like a little bit no-duh, but one of the things that we need to recognize is that the human, human beings are inhibited when it comes to believing God. Now, that's not the same thing as being inhibited to belief in God. He, a, many atheists and others have um, spoken about or lamented the fact that human beings seem to be pre-programmed to believe in God. A number of psychologists have, like, have shown this, that human beings, if they're not told otherwise, and they're told that there's a God and that God exists, human beings go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I believe that, right? That is not the same thing as trusting and believing God as a specific God, and specifically in what God has shown and spoken about himself, that is the good news he's revealed. That we are not pre-programmed for that we are actually inhibited towards. That is, there is something inside of us holding it at arm's length that is in our heart and will and wields our intellect to say, no, I want to keep it at this distance. I will believe in a God or I will believe in a transcendence, but I'm not going to fully embrace this God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and has given me specific good news for me to believe. And so humans, people often get confused that though there's something in us that wants to believe in a transcendent God, there's also an enormous inhibition in us that doesn't want to believe the specifics about the God and the good news that God has shared. And so you could say something like this, human beings are predisposed to believe in God and yet inhibited from believing God. We as human beings are kind of predisposed to believe in God, but we're inhibited from believing God. Um, Sigmund Freud is a good example of the first part. Um, Freud believed that believing God was this ridiculous notion that we all needed to grow out of, and yet in his office were like 500 idols and totems he had selected and brought in from all around the world, and he had like 50 of them that sat on his desk so he saw them every time he looked up, and he confided in colleagues that they brought him interest and comfort. Right? You can't help but look for something transcendent even in a world that you've tried to obliterate God out of. And yet— one of the things that we realize is that though some people have trouble believing in God, it's actually very few. But what the entire human race shares, including the most devout believers, is all of us have an enormous inhibition in believing God and believing his good news. Take, take Zechariah, for example. So Zechariah is a priest, right? Priests are supposed to know about God. 
Let's say he's a clean 70. Most priests start their service at age 30. So he's been a priest for like 40 years, right? That's kind of a long time. And it says that he'd been praying for a child. And you're supposed to at least receive from God the stuff you're at least openly praying for, right? So it's a little ironic that he has trouble buying into what the angel is saying. But it's actually way worse than that. Think about for a minute what Zechariah is doing. So in Israelite worship, right, at the very beginning of the day when the sun comes up, a priest is selected to go into the holy place, which nobody's allowed to go into, generally speaking, and there's a little table in there, and they offer incense on it to begin the day, right? And then they go out, and there's this huge sort of like holy, sanctified Texas barbecue pit out there in which hundreds of sacrifices would be burned on during the day. Jews from all over the state of Israel, even Jews from different parts of the world who had been dispersed there, would come back and they would burn sacrifices to God. Somewhere for repentance of sin, somewhere to alleviate guilt, but somewhere to, to celebrate fellowship with others and fellowship with God, and somewhere just offerings of thanksgiving and enjoyment of God and just an offering that people wanted to give. And then at the end of the day, when the sun was about to go down, they would gather up some of the ashes of all of those sacrifices, all of that worship that had been offered by all of those people all day, and they'd take some of those ashes, and they'd take a special incense that had four ingredients that was only allowed to be burned in worship, and a single priest would take those into the holy place to a little two-by-two -two table that stood right in front of the most holy place where God himself was supposed to dwell, and they would put the, the uh, coals under the grate, and then they'd put the incense on top of the grate on a metal plate, and it would burn, and it would fill the whole temple with the burning incense. Now the whole idea here is that he is rehearsing the fundamental revelation of God that God listens to praise and prayer. That's the whole purpose of this whole event, right? The verse literally says, before he walks in, all the people were outside praying. He brings the remains of the sacrifice of the incense into the temple. He stands right before where God is supposed to literally dwell, and he burns incense, which is literally nice-smelling smoke rising up. That's why incense was used. So we were supposed to take from this as human worshipers, God, not only do our prayers go up and praise go up to God, and God sees and receives them, but it smells good. He likes it. He enjoys it. He takes pleasure in it, and he's responsive to it. And then, where does the angel appear? Right? He appears to the right—that's not your right, is it? That's your right. To the right of the altar of incense. Now, in the Bible, if you are at the right hand of something, you are serving the thing you are at the right hand of, right? Jesus ascended to the what? The right hand of God the Father. That is, Jesus in all of his work fulfilled all of God's providential plan, right? In his death and resurrection, he served everything God had planned. Gabriel stands to the right of the altar, Right? And he says, this is what's going to happen. Your prayers have come up before God. Do you get it? Do you get it? There's literally incense burning. It is literally the smoke is rising out of the thing that is right there. He can actually literally smell it in his own nostrils. He has waited 40 years to do this act one time. There were 18,000 priests. A priest only did this once. So he's waited his whole career for this, all of his ministry, for this one moment to represent God, the prayers of the people. He can smell the incense, and Gabriel says, your prayers have come up before God. Right? And what is Zechariah's response? 
how can I be sure? Now, most people are enormously sexist. They have an enormous, ridiculous pro-woman bias. Women are just as horrible as men. They're just vicious in feminine ways rather than in masculine ways. And they go, well, you know, Elizabeth, she was so faithful. She's like, look what the Lord has done for me. And then when Mary shows up, she actually makes fun of her husband a little bit when she says, blessed is the one who believed that what the Lord told them would happen, right? Now, that might have been a jab. It's possible. But when does Elizabeth say that? When does she say, blessed is the one who believes what the— Right? Or, or when—I'm sorry, when does she say this? The Lord has done this for me, and in this time he has taken away my disgrace among the people. That's her song. That's her exuberant praise. She says, the Lord has done this for me, and he's taken away my disgrace among the people. When does she do that, does it say? After, count them, five months. Five months. Now listen, I don't know how many times Elizabeth miscarried— I don't know how long she'd carried children and then lost them. I don't know why it took her five months rather than six or four or one. I have no idea. But here's what I do know. It took her five months. For five months, what does it say she did? She was in—say it with me—seclusion. That is, she didn't want any of her neighbors to know that she was pregnant and then lose the baby. She couldn't bear that again. Or even for the first time, maybe she'd never conceived and she couldn't bear to have never conceived, finally conceived a child and then have it and celebrate and have her neighbors know and then lose the child. She couldn't do that. And she fully expected to on some level. It wasn't until month five where she said, this is actually going to happen. I'm going to carry this baby. Like, I'm going to have this baby. And all the things people have said about me, about the curse of God on me and all of that and their stupidity and ignorance— God is going to vindicate me. He's done this for me, right? Five months, right? And even Mary, there's nothing in what Gabriel says to Mary in their interaction that shows us Mary um, didn't believe what she was told. I mean, she did say, how does this happen? (laughs) Which is a nice inquisitive question since she understood the birds and the bees, apparently. And Gabriel just basically gives a vague answer, right? The Spirit of God is going to overshadow you and your baby's going to be called the Son of God. And she's like, awesome. But then Gabriel recognizes that Mary is just like every other human. And she's going to—I mean, once she is pregnant, she's going to face stuff. People are going to treat her a certain way. And when that happens, that's when her real test of faith is going to come. She hasn't already had her test of faith. Elizabeth and Zachariah had about 40 years of infertility testing of faith where they'd been praying and suffering and aching and all that. Mary's this younger girl. We don't really know much about her. Oh, and so God shows up, tells her this thing. And she's going to face her test when people start calling her a whore and things like that. And so Gabriel says, listen, your, your aunt who has been childless for these many years is with child, and the person who they called barren is in her sixth month. Now, why did he tell her that? Well, so he could make the following point. Nothing is impossible with God. But then what's, what did Mary do? She packed her little knapsack, and she beat tail to Elizabeth's house. And how long did she stay? Three months, which means she stayed up until what? The birth, basically, right? She either left just before, because who wants to be a house guest underfoot during that? Or she stayed till just after. We don't know. The point is, is that she went and she experienced and she saw and looked at and enjoyed and let build into her something impossible God was doing. 
so that when she faced whatever she was going to face, that she could live out the impossible thing that God was doing in her. You understand? The, the, the point is that in all, for all of these people, um, all these people the Bible tells us are blameless. That is, they were for real varsity believers. These were people who actually, they believed in God very deeply. These weren't shallow believers. These weren't people like, oh, Zachariah is just such a tool. No, Zachariah was an enormously godly man. He was the kind of person that everybody around him listened to his wisdom and thought he was a great man, because he was. And Elizabeth was like that. He was, she was probably a very fitting wife to his husband. They, they were probably a couple that everybody around them respected deeply. And yet, this is how they responded. Because life will do that to you. Human beings are universally inhibited in believing God and believing the good news he tells them. We'll believe in God. We'll believe in a, a vague transcendence and think that's going to get us somewhere. It doesn't. No, what we need and what we're inhibited about is believing God and believing that God will do what he has said for us. And you cannot experience the enjoyment and the exuberant praise and the strengthening and the enjoyment that God has created you for until you get past just believing in God or believing vaguely or having enough religion so that you've got something sorted out for what you believe about your death— and actually recognizing that there is a God who has revealed himself specifically, who has spoken very specific things to you, and that you have to believe not just in him, and not even just believe him, but you need to believe what he has said. The good news, right? Do you remember what Gabriel says when, when Zechariah goes, how, do I, how can I be sure this is going to happen? And listen, I don't know how Gabriel says it, I mean, he's like, look, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> like you, perhaps you've read the book of Daniel, right? I'm in it. I'm kind of a major character. Like, I'm, I'm standing literally in the presence of God to tell you what? This good news. You have to believe this good news in order for you to experience the joy that good news is supposed to bring. Right? So the first step is, is that. Um, what that also means is that you and I have to do very specific things to overcome the inhibition that we feel about believing God and believing his good news. See, if it's true, see, if you think that just generally speaking, hey, look, you know, I'm open to God and like, you know, surely whatever's going to be true about God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept it. I'm an open person. I'm open-minded. That is a, a really bad misunderstanding of human nature, okay? What you're doing is you're confusing the general aspect of our creation, the image of God, that we, that we can fairly easily come to believe in a God. You're, you, you're accidentally thinking that's the same thing as believing God and believing his good news, which we're actually, we're actually disposed against. And that's a very simple confusion, but it's enormously meaningful. Because if you believe that you are— in the human condition, you are inhibited to really believe God and believe what he said. Then you will do whatever you need to to get over that inhibition. You see, in American society, we tend to talk about getting over inhibitions that are the ones we're supposed to be strengthening, right? So for example, immodesty and modesty, right? Modesty is an is action of humility. It's not seeking to elevate yourself above other people immorally. It's to recognize that 
actual beauty is not how cool your hair is, and so not glamming yourself up beyond— right? There's, there's all kinds of goodness within modesty, and yet culturally we're like, oh, that's just—I mean, that's just repressive, like, you know, it, it's just gonna—it's just—but you should express yourself, right? And yet things like we're far too inhibited in our expression and enjoyment of praise— of loving God, of celebrating what he's doing in us and celebrating in other people. Um, think about the last time you kind of felt like you should tell somebody that you loved them or you were proud of them or something like that. And you kind of, you, you heard it in your head, but you couldn't make it come over your tongue. Anybody had that experience? A couple of people? Yeah, four of us? Yeah. Shut up. You're all liars, right? So, I mean, right? And, and like, like for me to be a good dad, like I have a hard time being like, hey, I'm really proud of you, right, to my kids. I just, it's, it's hard to make that come over my tongue. I can think it in my head. I can even feel it in my heart. It's really hard for me to make it come over my tongue. Well, look, I have to do whatever it takes to make that come over my tongue. If I have to, like, write it in a note the first couple of times, if I have to stammer it out like an idiot, whatever I have to do, if I have to, like, go back and apologize that I missed the moment, like, go back and, like, tell one of my daughters, look, I, this came to me in the car. I should have said it then, but I'm, like, an inhibited idiot. And, like, all I need to tell you is that I'm really proud of the woman you're becoming, Right? Is that awkward? Yes, it's awkward. Is awkward way better than surrendering to the inhibitions? Absolutely. And if an inhibition should go, then we should do whatever it takes to overcome that inhibition. Whatever practices, whatever rituals, whatever disciplines, whatever, whatever it takes. And people in our lives would be like, hey, you need to jump over that thing. You need to let me push you. So the, the first thing is we need to ask ourselves for all of our inhibitions, is this a good one or a bad one? Does God, is this a protective and right inhibition, like modesty? Or is this a, a, a wrong and broken inhibition, like our inhibition about believing God will do what he says and acting like it and enjoying it? Whenever we face a wrong inhibition, we should do whatever we need to do to get over it. And when we have a good inhibition, we should strengthen that inhibition so that we won't cross into self-destruction. And that might include rituals, things like—so for example, you might not, not naturally just burst into praise. That may be why you need to come to church and to do the singing. You might not naturally pray. That's why you might need to have a scheduled quiet time. Because yeah, it'd be great if you prayed all the time, but maybe you just don't, because you're kind of inhibited about really coming to God. Everybody's like that. Even people who believe in Jesus, there's something a little weird about prayer because you actually kind of feel like he may be listening, like the real one. And so sometimes, most people have to schedule it so that there's a time in their day they pray and they read the Bible. Those things aren't dead rituals. Those are specific disciplines and rituals designed to help us overcome an inhibition that will destroy us and suck away all our potential happiness. All right, second one. You still with me? All right, the second one is this. You have to believe God did it for you. You have to believe God did it for you. If you want to repeat after me, you can. I have to believe God did it for me. I have to believe God did it for me. Now, my dad was—his um, philosophy was kind of the noble pagan. He never made a profession of faith um, before his death to me. Um, and one of the things he disliked about religion was that it tended to make people self-important. It tended to create this kind of like false— 
the sort of false humility or like personal arrogance. We're like, Jesus, Jesus is my special friend. He's going to make my life great, and I'm going to go to heaven, and whatever, and it's okay if I'm a terrible trial to you and all my selfishness, right? And he didn't like that, and that was one of the things that, that drove him away from what, what we would call organized religion or something like that. And yet, although there's potential for narcissism and a misunderstanding of all that God would do for us, there's actually a terrible blasphemy of not, in not personally experiencing, personally enjoying, and holding on to what God does for us. This is a great example because nothing could be bigger than these events. Like literally all of salvation history, for almost from beginning to end, from Adam and the creation all the way to the final consummation, everything and all of that is coming down to what's happening in two like 17-inch cube uteruses in the same room. I mean, think about this. All the cosmos, all of creation history, all of salvation, and when Elizabeth and Mary hug, it's all happening in three square feet. Think about that. This was so much bigger than them. This is so much bigger than Zechariah, so much bigger than Elizabeth, so much bigger than Mary. And yet all three of them recognize that it is their duty and their option and their ability to personally receive this for themselves and enjoy it and, and love God in it. So for example, Elizabeth says, after that five months, and she realizes this is going to happen, and she's carrying the second Elijah, right? Like Malachi, the end of Malachi, those are the last three verses of the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible at that time. And her child is going to be the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Her son will be the second Elijah that will prepare the way for the Messiah, right? And yet at the same time, she says, the Lord has done this for me. He has taken away my disgrace among the people, right? Because a second Elijah had to come. But why Elizabeth? Why was it her? Why did that matter? Was it just so Mary would have somebody to connect with so that she could be strengthened? I don't know. And guess what? Luke doesn't tell us. In fact, he probably didn't know. God just chose her. And in choosing her, he did something for her, and he took away her disgrace in all of the people she lived among. He did something amazing for her, and she embraced it as for her. Right? Now, is that, is that too self-important? Well, when the angel comes to Zechariah, and he tells him the good news— do you remember what he says about the son? He says, your prayers have come up before God, and you are going to have a son. Do you remember what the next line is? He doesn't say he's going to be the second Elijah in the second line. He doesn't say he's going to bring people back to God. He doesn't say he's going to turn all people to the wisdom of the righteous, or that he's going to turn the hearts of children to their parents. You know what the first line he says is? He will be a joy and a delight to you. That's what he says. This, this child you've been praying for all these years, you're going to have a child. And not only are you going to have a child, you're going to have a child that you're going to like. <laughs> I mean, think about it. The young man who grows up to turn the hearts of children to their parents can't be a guy who hates his own dad, right? And what does the dad really want? He just wants a child that grows up and realizes that they did something for him and somehow walks in the general ethics that they lay down in the household. That's all dads want, Right? And this, this kid was going to be full of the Holy Spirit even from birth, and this kid was going to be in 
Zachariah was going to be filled with joy and delight in having him as his son. Salvation history can wait till the second clause. You see? And when you get to Mary, she's no different. Now, I, I want you to realize, that's not Zachariah being self-important. That is Gabriel, the, the angel of God, preaching to Zechariah what God was doing for him. It is, it is not, they are not mutually exclusive. It, it's not like if you pretend God does nothing for you and just mourn what he doesn't do for everybody else, that that's real humility, and what you're really looking at is the big picture. They're not mutually exclusive. Everything God does, God does. Everything God does is amazing, and everything God does should be celebrated, and it's not a— a punch in the face of someone else if what God did for you, he didn't specifically do for them in that same way. What the Bible says is that everybody that turns to God by faith, he works redemption in their life. He's doing stuff. And if you celebrate what God is doing in your personal life, the same way you would celebrate it if it was your neighbors, there's nothing unhumble about that. In fact, that's what humility is. If I celebrate what something God is doing in me the same way I would celebrate it if he did it for Fran. But I celebrate it nonetheless. That is humility. To not celebrate the activity of God in my life because I'm somehow trying to be humble is false humility and is a deep blasphemy. And what's even as important as that is that I won't really see the work of grace in you until I develop eyes for it in the functioning of my own life, because my life is the one I'm most acquainted with. And when I begin to get eyes for seeing what God is doing for me and in me and through me, then I'll be able to see much better what he's doing in, through, and for my neighbor, and I can celebrate it in them. And when I celebrate it in them, guess what happens? If they have been too inhibited about it, that they couldn't embrace it and enjoy it in their own life, when I celebrate it in them— I pull them over the hump of that inhibition, and they can celebrate it in themselves with me. And then when they start celebrating what God is doing in their life, then what happens? Then they can celebrate in somebody else's, and then, and then, and then, and then. We are supposed to believe in the big picture, but you cannot experience the joy of the gospel. You cannot experience what God and his work and his word is supposed to mean to us until it comes home to roost, until you believe and you rejoice in what God is doing for you. Right? Mary says it this way, right? Mary says, this is how she starts her song, right? This is the first lines. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So exuberant praise. What's motivating it? For he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name, right? So holy is his name, worship, right? My soul rejoices, and I, I'm praising God and enjoying praising God. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. That's not a reference to, this, to his servant Israel. Because the next line is, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. His servant is Mary, She's just referring herself in the passive, in the humble passive. He, he saw me, right? I get, I get so sick of our casting and artistic depictions of Mary as this thin, curvy, gorgeous-faced, well-groomed young woman that any man would want to make his wife, okay? 
The only reason we shouldn't depict Mary as over 200 pounds is because she was in rural Nazareth and probably starved half to death a few times that the crops didn't go well. She probably didn't break 5'2 because of malnutrition. There's no reason to believe she was pretty, right? She was almost certainly horrifically uneducated, living in a very backwards rural mountain town, as they normally are. In addition to all that, she was as poor as she couldn't put together anything but a couple of doves for the sacrifice when her son was born. That's after she was married and took in whatever assets he had. She was nobody. You, would, you wouldn't even see her if you walked by her. And yet she says, the Lord was mindful of me, of the humble estate, of the lowness of his servant. And because of what he's doing for me for generations— for hundreds of generations, men and women throughout the world will, will hear my story, hear that I even existed. I'm going to be written into history. I'm nothing. And they will hear my name and they will say, she was blessed. Notice she doesn't say that she was godly or she was good. <laughs> Mary doesn't even make a claim about how good she was. She says, people will, will hear my story and they'll say, that woman was blessed. God did something for her. And she's like, and that I'll rejoice. And in that, they will rejoice. They will say, she was blessed. And she in Jesus is in my line. And through her, I am blessed. You see, when we realize that I have to believe God did it for me, then when we come to these songs, we begin to realize that if we want to experience the kind of joy and the kind of—and if we want to joyfully pour out exuberant praise to complete all of the enjoyment that is meant to happen in us, it has to start with us not just believing in a God or believing in some kind of vague theology. We have to believe God, and believing God means believing in his character and believing what he has revealed about himself. That is, believing what he said. And everything God has said to everybody, God has said to you. God has said to you, Right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross for you, scorning its shame, to save you. Right? He's given you his divine power so that you'd have everything you would need for life and godliness through the power of him who called you by his own glory and goodness. 2 Peter 1, 7. You go through the whole Bible. Everything God says to everybody, he says to you. And you cannot be changed by it until you believe it for you. Listen, I don't care what your background is and what it's done to you. When the Bible says that in Christ we are changed— in 1 Corinthians 6, this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, right? That, that's you! You might come from 15 divorces in a row. Christ has come to break the curse for you. For you. Right? In Christ, you are a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. That's for you. If you believe Jesus, if you trust him, if you believe blessed is the one that believes what he has promised will be accomplished, then it's for you. It's all for you. Does it take it away from me? 
It's for you. Jesus did it for you. You have to believe God and his good news. And you have to believe it's for you. And it might take you five months of seclusion in something before you can embrace it. You might have to get struck talking lists for a while to receive it. But I want you to notice what Gabriel said. He said, you're not going to be able to talk for nine months because you didn't believe it, but it's still going to happen in its proper time. And for all our failures of faith, for all our unwillingness to believe, there is a thousand good things and ways to bring about blessedness and transformation for you that he has promised. And even if you haven't believed it like you should, even if you deserve to not talk for the better part of a year, he has given it and promised it in such a way that he still says, and it will come true in its proper time. Because he doesn't back down in his character. He doesn't back down in his promises because we believe badly. It says in Romans, while we were Christ's enemies, he died for you. So believe it. Believe it right now. Believe it for you. If you're not a Christian, believe in Jesus. He died for you. You can't just believe in a general God. You have to take the God who is at his word. You have to believe the good news of his promised redemption that he purchased for you. And you have to receive it for you. And if you've been a Christian and you just believe good things happen to other people or that there's just no divine activity in your life, you've got to learn to see it. You have to believe it's for you. You have to believe that the promises that God has made can happen there for you. Yes, you're inhibited. Yeah, you're going to have to fight over that wall. Yeah, you're going to need rituals and brothers and sisters in Christ to help you. Yes, you're going to have to pray and you're going to have to cry out for the help of his Holy Spirit. And yeah, you're going to need to read his word and know what he says and figure out how to do it. But it's for you. And there's no background that so binds you that redemption can't take hold of you. Even in all of our failings, God rejoices in things we bear well. You could bear a divorce really well. You could bear cancer really well. And bearing things can be a place where the worth of— where you can believe for you that Jesus conquers death, that Jesus is bigger than your dysfunctions, that forgiveness is more beautiful than rage. You can believe that for you. You can believe that your incredibly dysfunctional marriage because you married your polar opposite is an enormous platform for the glory of God to shine and is a great opportunity for a complimentary marriage when you get over yourselves and learn to actually appreciate what God has made the other person to be because God has made marriage for you for the blessing and welfare of all mankind. Friends, we, we can be so analytical and so mechanistic and so <clears throat> disconnected with the care of the gardener for each particular plant. Listen, when I garden, I watch individual tomatoes grow and ripen. And I'm a wicked, thoughtless man. There's nothing about your estate and nothing about your life that God is unmindful of. All these things he's done for you. for you. The worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing. 
And the song's actually a pretty good fit for what we just talked about, which we didn't plan. And I hope that you'll sing it for you. Even in the first line, there's the word us. Put in me, just today. And, and if, if you, but if you can feel the inhibition, if you feel that, that thing there, and you're like, ah, uh, and you like, there, that is connected to something you won't repent of, you won't let go of. There's an idol that that thing is nailed to, and it, that's why it won't move. You don't, you don't want to give something up. You don't want to stop something. And so that ambition is locked there. You have to repent. You have to let that thing go to push the inhibition aside. As long as the, the stakes of the idol stand behind the inhibition, it won't move. You have to repent of the idol. So for some of us, you just need to push past the inhibition. Believe and rejoice and receive and trust. For some of us, you need to get out an axe and you need to chop the stakes out of that thing and break it down, and you need to let something go. You need to let go of your baby dropping ceremony, your baby crying ceremony, your baby jumping ceremony, whatever it is. You're, let go of your sinful painted belly button and receive what God has given you to rejoice in, and you will find a joy you have either forgotten or have never experienced. Let's pray. God, as we sing this now and as we try to respond <clears throat> to what you, you show us in these early passages in Luke's gospel, help us to learn something um, that we will never lose from the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, something about you and about how you relate to us. And help us to not just believe in you, but to believe you and to believe in the good news you've spoken. And help us to believe that it is for us. Let us go, let us let go of the blasphemous false humility that won't let us rejoice in what you're doing in us and unleash that through us to rejoice in what you're doing in our neighbors so we can celebrate every evidence of your action, every evidence of your grace, so we can say not so-and-so is a good man, but so-and-so is blessed as she or he puts his trust in Jesus. Help us right now do whatever it takes to overcome the inhibitions that would keep us from believing you and believing you for us. Amen.